Feeding a growing global population using less land, water, and growing inputs is a challenge, but it's an even bigger challenge when you're looking to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and farm during COVID. I'm Robert Colangelo, and this is GreenSense, where we bring you eco-innovations, many of which are happening in the world of controlled environment agriculture. We're joined again by Chris Higgins of Port America and Urban Ag News. Chris, welcome back. It's been a while. It has, Robert. Thanks for having me again. Well, let's jump right into it, Chris. Uh, uh, LED lights are the heart and soul and often the most expensive part of any vertical farm. They replace the sun and provide the energy for plant photosynthesis. Many LED lights are manufactured overseas, mostly in China. And COVID has created kinks in the supply chain, resulting in long shipping delays, increased shipping costs, and higher prices due to tariffs imposed by the Trump administration on LED lights made in China. Anything more you'd like to add to the problem? <laughs> well, I think you pretty much hit everything possible. And, and you could add into it a whole bunch of people thinking about lights in a different way, right? There's a lot of different opinions out there. Um, in addition to what we know from the science, there's as many opinions as there are products. So take all of that and I can imagine it. It's a very difficult thing for new growers and investors to manage. Well, we'd like to be about solutions. So to me, a simple solution to the LED light problem is why don't we just bring manufacturing onshore back to the States? But that is easier said than done. Yeah. Why? Why? Because we offshored everything, <laughs> right? <laughs> we, we offshored everything. And there's certain parts of the lighting industry that I don't think will ever come back to the United States or even to North America. Possibly, you know, let's say there's some stuff that we'll see in Mexico, but so much of it's been offso uh, offshore for us. Um, things like the diodes that we use in the LEDs, we do not have the manufacturing facilities in North America to manufacture those diodes. So those things will always be made in, in Asia, at least based on what we know today. Um, and we kind of have to rebuild the manufacturing capacity in North America to be able to, to do high power, you know, high, high power or high output lighting. One U.S. company, GE Current, uh, seems to be ahead of the onshoring curve. They built a manufacturing plant in North Carolina to produce horticultural LED lights, and it opened this year. What great timing. Uh, yeah. What kind of challenges and hurdles did they face to bring a plant back on shore? So one of the things that's important to that story is that that factory already existed. If it wasn't for the fact that that was a, um, let's call it an asset, that was built by General Electric originally in 1955 and has been under operation that whole time, even though it's much smaller today, you know, in terms of what it was in the past. Um, if it wasn't that that asset didn't already exist, I don't think it would have been an option for them to reshore production. Um, that asset, again, was created, it was built in 1955 and has maintained production of street lighting. So it was a high output fixture that was used to be input in extreme environments. And so it was that they had a, a facility different, obviously than a greenhouse or than an indoor farm, but they had a facility that was capable and UL certified to be able to make a high output light fixture that was built for inhospitable environments. So what kind of lights do they manufacture now that they've retrofitted and maybe upgraded the facility? 
Um, from, from what I know, which I don't know a hundred percent of what they do in there, but most of it is, is they sell to a lot of cities. Um, so they'll sell to cities to redo their street lighting along the highways. And they have, they have done a lot of retrofitting of parking lots for, um, for people like Walmart and Lowe's. I think it's Walmart and Lowe's. I know Walmart for sure. I think the other one is Lowe's. <laughs> so are they making LED horticultural lights? They are making, they are now making LED horticultural lights. But when you, when you visit the factory, it is a small percentage of the overall footprint. It is a massive footprint. So they're still manufacturing, uh, from what I'm told, tens of thousands of outdoor fixtures. And now they're starting to get into the point where they're manufacturing. And I probably should use a different, assembling is probably the better term than manufacturing, right? Where they're assembling um, LED grow lights in this year, it'll probably be about 20, 30,000 pieces, I would imagine. So does this make the LED lights cheaper and faster to obtain? Because they Cheapers, avoid the tariffs and yeah. uh, maybe the slide, supply chain's not as kink because it's here and they don't have yeah. to ship them overseas. Cheaper is a word that's difficult, right? Because <laughs> um, I wouldn't say that they're cheaper, but I would say that they're cost competitive with lights that are currently produced in Asia. Um, uh, and we can talk about how you define that, but they're cost competitive. Um, things that, you know, cheaper from a grower's perspective, especially a grower that's building a greenhouse, I would say cheaper because the grower doesn't have to worry about storage or delays at port that might really increase their shipping cost. Um, they, there's, from that standpoint, I think the total cost of ownership is less expensive for somebody getting a light uh, assembled in the United States. Uh, and when I say assembled, I guess I should go into that. They, they, you know, most of the LED grow lights we have for high, high output lighting, they have an aluminum body. Um, these aluminum bodies are, are built in the Midwest. They have a PCB board. Those PCB boards are still sourced out of Asia, but their boards are brought into the United States and then they're populated with the diodes on the boards here in North America. Um, so there's different things, a lot of the aluminum and a lot of the, the, the hooks and those sorts of things that are used to hung and mount the lights, those are made in the United States. The other components are assembled and put together. Now, what that allows the manufacturer to do to keep their costs down is you well know that there's a lot of different talk about the spectrum of light that a grower requires. So that puts pressure on manufacturers to carry a lot of different, um, um, a lot of different inventory, right? A lot of different parts in which they got to guess what the market's going to be using based on the crops that they might be growing or building for that year. This allows the manufacturer to manufacture exactly what's needed right before it's going to ship. And that helps to keep everybody's cost down and reduces the pressure of the grower to have to store a lot of product ahead of their uh, construction project. Do you see other LED manufacturers following GE's uh, lead and bringing uh, plants back on shore? I don't. Um, I, I really don't right now. I think there's a wait and see attitude. And I think we're seeing this not only in LED lighting, but with a lot of different supplies that this, the pressure that we have on the supply channel, whether it's for fertilizers or substrates or any of these other things, that the pressure will eventually subside and things will pass and will go back to normal. Um, having spoken with you quite a bit offline, I think me and you question whether what normal is anymore. <laughs> right. <laughs> and how long uh, that'll take. <laughs> uh, but, you know, I think there's still a wait and see. There's a couple other manufacturers that are capable of doing this year, but it's not the big names that people would think. Um, 
there's some smaller manufacturers uh, uh, that are, are definitely capable of onshoring and producing stuff here. And you see some manufacturers, somebody like Fluence, that's capable of doing it both in, in, in Asia as well in, in the United States. It's just their factory footprint in the United States is kind of small. Well, you brought it up. There's other kinks in the supply chain. The big one's fertilizer and substrate. Yeah. So talk a little bit about that. How are those uh, problems in, impacting growers and how are they getting around it? So growers are, you know, how they're impacting growers is growers can no longer wait to the last minute to order. Um, there's been huge delays in, and this has to do partially with the, you know, at the same point in time, we're having all these logistical challenges. Growers are, there's also an expansion in the market and that market might not just be the production of fruits and vegetables. That might be the production of crops like cannabis all of which are using the same raw materials. So we have an increase in the market. At the same time, we have logistical hurdles that we have to overcome. And this is meaning that growers are having a plan way out in advance. Some of the clients that I'm working with on simple things like plastic pots for the production of raspberries, um, uh, they're placing orders right now for 2023. Hmm. And, and that's the change in the mindset that the growers are having to look at. They may have to change the way they look at their inventory dollars. Uh, I think the biggest change is our industry was built with just-in-time inventory management as part of our practice, and we cannot rely on just-in-time inventory management today. Well, that tells me there's going to be shortages somewhere until people figure this out and change their behavior. Is that and true? <laughs> that, well, you know, there's other things that are going on in the world today that we have no control over, right? If you look at just the situation with Russia, um, they're a big energy producer. Products like fertilizers and plastics are high energy production products, right? And so now we have, we're gonna see probably spikes in pricing. Um, we're going to see some manufacturers hold back in, in terms of maybe not being able to afford to manufacture certain products at certain times. And we have definitely seen that in the European greenhouse industry, where there were some growers who weren't ready to manage their energy cost, um, they had flexible energy pricing, and they got caught, and they couldn't they couldn't afford to plant crops. It's a small amount of growers, but it's an, just an example of how growers are having to manage so many different things today in order to set it, stay ahead of the game. Well, let's go back to LED lights. One of the challenges with using LED lights is even though they're energy efficient, uh, much more than your fluorescence, uh, the sheer number you acquired to farm indoors creates a need for a lot of electricity. And uh, your publication, Urban Ag News, had a story about strategic energy management, which is becoming necessary as the controlled environment ag industry grows. Tell us a little about that. Yeah, so... Uh... You know, Urban Ag News is working with different parties within the, the, the industry to try to bring forward the issues that are most important to the growers. Um, let, there is going to be certain, it's going to start state by state, right? But certain states like California will start to legislate in energy, you know, limits to how much power you can use to produce certain things. And, and so we're going, we're seeing people have to change the way they look at things, better understand not only the lighting, but everything that else that goes along with using light in, in a environment to grow plants. Because the minute you start adding light, you start adding heat. You start adding heat, you have to do something to take away the heat, right? And so there is this domino effect that in every one of those 
solutions to your problems uses more energy. <laughs> so right now, that's what we're looking at. We have some very, you know, especially in facilities that grow with no sunlight. Um, there's some, and, and crops that require high light intensities, they have pretty big energy footprints and, and the race is on to figure out how to manage that. Well, another article you talked about is that uh, vertical farming is expected to continue to gain credibility as a reliable food source. So tell me, where is the limiting factor? Who, who questions its credibility? Is it the consumer, retailers, or others in the supply chain? I think the people who sometimes question the, the credibility are really the other growers. <laughs> I, I, and, and I say that well, laughingly. That's just competitive and competition, isn't it? Yeah. Well, and I say that laughingly because depending on your age, and we were making jokes about our age before the, before the show started, right? Depending on your age, we can remember times when food is seen as a very cheap commodity, right? And we know that when going to grow in a sunless environment, we're adding a lot of extra cost to the production scenario. And, and what I think when, when people question it, it's questioning whether or not the consumer will pay for a higher, for a product that costs more. And if there is enough value in those, in those additional costs to keep the consumer with the product long-term. And so when you ask who questions it, I think the competitors definitely question it, right? The guys who rely on their old way of doing things. I think certain channels, retailers question whether or not they can move the product off the shelf quick enough. And then everybody in between there questions it. Uh, I'm not close enough to the consumer side to know what they think about it, but there's always going to be a customer for a certain amount of products. I think the average person that is well-educated within the produce supply channel questions, how big is that group of consumers that's willing to currently pay a premium for that product? Well, your article goes on to mention that uh, there's, there's a number of big vertical farm projects and some of the big retailers seem to embrace this and give it some traction. Kroger's installed modular vertical farms manufactured by InFarm uh, at two of its Seattle stores. Walmart uh, announced that it's investing in vertical farming company Plenty. And public supermarkets in Lakeland, Florida has installed a 40-foot container hydroponic farm in its parking lot. Those are pretty big uh, players in the retail uh, grocery market. Uh, sounds like they're embracing it. Yeah, and I, and I think the reasons for embracing it probably vary by company. I almost feel a little bit uh, silly answering this question because I think you might know more about this topic than I do. <laughs> uh, but in saying that, like we work closely with uh, Central Market, which is a high-end retailer here in the Dallas area. And they put, they put in a container uh, farm behind a couple of their stores. And they have embraced the model because they feel that there's different values that come from having the food grown on site. They think that there is, a, there is definitely part of their consumer that wants it. Right, and that's willing to, and and that and that buys it, and it, they've been running this, uh, these farms now for a few years. So we definitely know that there is a group of consumers out there that want it. I believe personally that some of these mar some of these retailers also see the advantages of marketing this innovation, right? And that consumers are coming to the stores looking for these new products, looking to try these new new products, and looking to see if there's a different experience with their food. Chris, what is it about vertical farming and controlled environment agriculture that is so attractive to investors? They've poured a record number of funds into this market, into these uh, larger companies in the last couple of months. What is it? 
That, that, that feel, I feel like I'm stepping into quicksand on that one. <laughs> what, what I personally think it is, I think is a handful of things. Number one, based on my years of experience in the industry, I think it started off as an ESG play, right? I think they were looking at things to round out their portfolio that tackled uh, both the environment and, and um, the sustainable nature of their businesses. I think that was where it started. Um, I think as, it, as we've gone on, I think, you know, as an investor today, it's difficult to make money, right? You need to make these sorts of returns and you need to try a lot of different things. And over the last couple of years, everything was at, you know, at a fairly high price premium. And I think people still see that within the world of agriculture, that there's gains to be made, that there's improvements that are going to allow them to get a good return on their investment. And, and I think that's what keeps people coming back. We know that the population globally is going to continue to grow. We know that there are things in the environment um, that are causing farmers to need to find new solutions to being able to provide product 12 months a year. And we know that there's going to be money for investors that figure out the right solutions. And I think that's what keeps everybody coming back. We're all going to keep eating. There's going to be more people. And, and we need to feed them healthy produce. And we have new, the next generation sure does seem to be more concerned about what they put in their body than, than the previous generations did. And we have less arable land and less water, and we have a growing global population. And COVID has really caused people to rethink these long-tailed supply chains that are very brittle and small uh, uh, impacts can disrupt them. So I think those all bode well for CEA and vertical farming. Chris, it's been a while since you've been on the show. Any last words of wisdom you'd like to share with the audience? <laughs> I, over the last two years, what I've taught myself is that I don't have a lot of wisdom. I'm just, <laughs> I'm just trying to get out there and, and you know, kind of help continue to make a positive change for the community of, you know, of farmers that are within my network. And, and I think that we're moving things the right way forward by focusing on local food production. Well, Chris, it's always a pleasure to talk with you and you are a wealth of knowledge. Thanks for joining us on Green Sense and we'll hopefully not have such a gap between the next time we have you on. All right. Thanks again for having me. That's Chris Higgins with Urban Ag News and Hort Americas. Find out more at urbanagnews.com. I'm Robert Colangelo. This is Green Sense. Subscribe to our podcast at greensensefarms.com and listen to the Green Sense Minute Thursdays and Saturdays on 105.9 WBBM Chicago.